Uh, You can take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. We are, we're rounding the corner of this incredible letter that we have been working through for over a year now. And we're getting to the section that many people maybe think there isn't much value in or certainly not much relevance for the church, but I I trust that this afternoon as we look at together, you're going to see just the opposite, that this is an incredibly helpful and powerful section. And we're going to continue on with this theme of Dedication Sunday. Um, There there is this thread that we're weaving through our service together, and it's important that parents dedicate their children to the Lord and are dedicated themselves to raising their children in a way that points them to the Lord. But it's important that we understand that as a church, we must be a dedicated people. We must be committed to Jesus Christ and committed to the church of Jesus Christ, His bride that He loves. There is a requirement for the people of God to be refreshed and revisit this idea of dedication. It's easy to become distracted. It's easy in the Christian life to to, to stop being committed to what we were once giving ourselves wholly to. And so we need these moments where we just kind of step back, evaluate our lives, and maybe drive the stake back into the ground and get rededicated, in a sense, to what the Lord is doing and what He's called us to be a part of. And just like parents, there's a a great weight of responsibility that's laid upon parents. That's why it's important to make that kind of a commitment and dedication. I mean, lives are at stake, little souls, precious little lives entrusted to parents. But I want you to see the parallel with the church. You see, church, there have been lives entrusted to us, one another. We are called to build one another up and strengthen one another in the Lord. And more than that, there are lives of lost people at stake. And and when we look at our mission and get dedicated to the mission, we need to understand that God is trying to accomplish something in this world through us. And if we aren't dedicated to the task, we, we won't accomplish the task. And so as Paul's wrapping up his letter here, he wants to acknowledge the dedication of many who have helped him accomplish the task of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ across the known world. And really what we see here is just another list. We thought we had a lot of names to read already. Well, we have even more. There are 28 people referenced in this section of Romans chapter 16. It is far and away the most time that Paul has ever dedicated to referencing and commending individuals in the church. And you can see in this Paul's love for the, for the people of God, his relationships, the tenderness, the compassion, the sweetness, the acknowledgement of, of how much they have served him and served the cause of Christ. And so you, you just see the pastoral heart of Paul all over this. And, and it reminds us, listen, of, of how we ought to view one another and how we ought to view our responsibility in the life of the church. These selfless individuals that Paul mentions here by name, most of them, they stand in stark contrast to the selfishness that pervades our world. 
They, they embody a culture of genuine fellowship, of love, of sacrifice, and service. They teach us what it looks like to be the church. And a list, I know, I know sometimes you read a list and it's kind of like, okay, there's a bunch of names I don't know, but I, I want to remind you that every time we read a list, it is a list of actual people, human beings who are precious in the sight of God. And, and everybody, listen, no, nobody loves a list unless your name is on it, right? But I want you to, to look at these names with me and, and dig into this. Some have said that what we have in front of us here is a sociological gold mine because we actually don't have much about the church in Rome. We don't know much about what was actually going on in the church of Rome, but this here gives us a glimpse, some insight into what was taking place and what the people were like, and what we see is their extreme dedication to the Lord, to the church, and to the ministry that God had entrusted to her. I want to work quickly through this uh, passage, and then I want to apply some principles. Let me read it for us. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennatus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trifania, or Trifania, sorry, and Trifosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet As uh, Asyncritus. You have to forgive me. All these names are starting to blend together. <laughs> Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet uh, Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That is a mouthful. <laughs> like I said, let's just work quickly through this, and, and I'll make a few observations as we do, and then I'm going to make some, some practical applications for us. He begins in, in the first couple of verses by commending a very important woman by the name of Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. Most scholars believe that this, this woman, Phoebe, is actually the one who was given the great responsibility of delivering this, this very letter, the book of Romans, to the church in Rome. She had a great responsibility, she was much loved, and she had great distinction in the life of the church. She's from this city of Sencrea, 
which is about eight miles from Corinth. And you'll notice what he says about her here, that she is a patron. In other words, she was a woman of, of means. She had great wealth, and she loved to use that wealth to help serve others and support the work of the church. Paul says very specifically that she helped him. She was a patron for him to enable him to go on his missionary journeys and continue to spread the gospel, and not just Paul, but, but others as well. But Paul wants her also to be known first and foremost as a sister. Did you catch that? Our sister Phoebe. I love the family nature. When Paul thinks about the church, he's always thinking in family terms. Not only is she a sister, but she is a servant. She's a servant, and, and we see that very clearly. Paul is, is setting her forth as a servant of God who has unique ministry. It's possible that she was actually given great responsibility in the life of a church, maybe a particular role in the life of the church. But either way, this woman is a great servant. She is a sister, and she is giving of herself to support the work of the gospel. And he tells them that they are to help her in whatever she may need from you, he says, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Paul has made it clear that the church is to be a place that welcomes others, particularly those who are a part of the family of God. That The church, sadly, often is, is often a very cold and, and unfriendly place to walk into. It's often a place where people walk in who are lonely and longing for relationship, and instead of getting a warm welcome, they often get a cold shoulder. The church can often be a place where there are little cliques and little factions and groups who meet and exclude other people, but that is not to be the way it is in the body of Christ, in the family of God. We are to be a people who love like Christ has first loved us. Amen? As Paul has said in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, we are to welcome people into the family of God, to embrace them as a part of our family, to love them the way that we have been loved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All those who come to Jesus Christ are met by the Father with open arms. We too must be a people who have open arms for others. Welcome her, he says. Next, in verse 3, we meet a couple by the name of Prisca and Aquila. And actually, we're familiar with them if you've read through the book of Acts, particularly in, in chapter 18. This is speaking of the same couple, of Priscilla and Aquila. This name is kind of a short form, Prisca. They're a husband and wife ministry team. You can read more about them in Acts chapter 18. But Acts tells us that Paul actually met them in Corinth on his second missionary journey. They originally came from Rome. They went to Corinth, and then they went to Ephesus. And the book of Acts tells us that they were used by God in a mighty way. They were faithful to the Lord. They were discipling people and even risking their lives for Paul. Notice what it says about them here. They're fellow workers in Christ who risked their necks for my life, literally put their own necks on the chopping block for Paul. No wonder he thinks so highly of them. They were willing to die with Paul. They were willing to die for Paul. 
And we notice this too, they even open up their house for ministry. It's likely that they had a little house church meeting in their own home. I mean, these people were committed to ministry. They were just doing the work of the ministry, and Paul commends them for it. Look at verse 4. We're introduced to a man named Epinetus. And this is so fascinating. Verse 5, excuse me. He says, greet my beloved Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now, some of you, maybe you were the first convert in your family, and you're like, wow, like, and that was a big deal. You know, you, 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 you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and your family, you know, maybe they weren't walking with the Lord or they wanted nothing to do with, with Christianity and this Jesus Christ, and you gave yourself to the, to the Lord and He saved you, and you had this sense like, man, I'm the only one. Can you imagine how this guy felt? In Asia, the only Christian. He's looking around, he's like, hey, anybody else out there? But the good news is that he wasn't going to be alone for long because we, we, we see this, right, through the, the Scriptures, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And pretty soon, the Lord was building His church and adding to the numbers day by day those who were being saved. Even in Rome, we have this list of 28 people and references to house churches that are meeting. The gospel has been moving in power in this place. Verse 6, we meet this woman named Mary who worked hard for you. And then another, a group, a couple, likely, Andronicus and Junia. We notice, too, that these two were prisoners for the sake of the gospel. He says they're well known amongst the apostles. They have a good reputation, and they were even in Christ before Paul. Paul's like, listen, they were, they were saved before me. They have been laboring faithfully for the Lord even long before God rescued me on the road to Damascus. Verses 8 and 9 were given more fellow workers. And notice the language, my beloved Ampliatus. I mean, there's such affection. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker. You just notice the language. My beloved stake is like these people meant so much to Paul. They've served so faithfully alongside him. Verse 10, people who are likely servants um, who served in the homes of richer and wealthier people. That's Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. And again, those, those are likely servants. They're, they're saved, in, and now they're a part of this household and serving together in the Lord. Verse 12 gives us three women. The first two are likely uh, sisters, probably many believe twin sisters. Verse 12 says, greet those workers in the Lord, Trephania and Trephosa. And ironically, uh, those are hardworking women, but their names actually mean delicate and dainty. <laughs> so delicate, greet delicate and dainty, the hard workers. And one more there, Parasus, who has worked hard in the Lord Verse 13, Rufus, who's chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, I love this, who has been a mother to me as well. Don't you love that? Listen, uh, that just reminds me of the words of Jesus, that those, those who have to lose father, mother, sister, brother in this life, those who have to give up much for following Jesus, they gain it a hundredfold in the family of God. And even Paul, I love this, the great apostle Paul says, man, Rufus' mom, she was kind of like my mom. She, she cared for me, she loved me, she's precious to me. And then in verse 14 through 16, 
as we've read, there's two different groups that, that may be possibly two different church gatherings or small groups, house churches possibly. He says, so what do, we, what do we do? What do we learn from a list of people like this? Well, I, I think what we see is kind of what I've laid out already in the introduction. We, we see a people who are dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to the church, dedicated to the work of ministry, and we learn as we look at this what we too must be, that we must be a dedicated people, a dedicated church, and, and for that, we, we need to see a few things. So, let me just point out a few things. In order to be a dedicated church, we must first see the people it takes. We have to understand that God saves people. He builds them up into a body. He brings them into a family. He knits them together, and He wants to grow them and strengthen them so that they can continue to move the mission of the gospel forward. And I want you to see here that it doesn't take an elite group, you know, the cream of the crop, the most influential, the most popular, the most recognizable. I mean, this isn't a group of celebrities that he's gathered together who can stand on their platform to simply promote Jesus Christ. It's not like that at all. No, the church, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is so often the poor, the weak, not many noble It shows us that they were um, first an ordinary people. They're an ordinary people. This is the way God loves to work. They're, They're men and women from all different backgrounds who are living in the city of Rome. And God, in His grace, He just, He let the gospel begin to advance through, through the, the lips of people who have been converted. And those people heard and surrendered to Jesus and they, they jumped into the family of God and they rolled up their sleeves but they were just ordinary people. And God loves to take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. This is how the gospel works. He's not looking for you to be somebody special like God's up in heaven really thinking about how wonderful you are and how you can really be a blessing to Him. No, God looks down and sees a bunch of people who are a mess, a bunch of people who are nobodies, a bunch of people who are, in many ways, insignificant. We're a drop in the bucket, and He says, I'm going to choose you, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to do extraordinary things in you through the power of the gospel, and then I'm going to do extraordinary things through you through the power of the gospel. He can take a bunch of common fishermen, tax collector uneducated, and He can use them to turn the world upside down. Imagine what He could do with us today, a room this size filled with this many people. They're not just an ordinary people, they're a diverse people. And it's hard to see this kind of out the gates, but let me just point out to you what we, what we see and just kind of bring it to the surface for your attention. What we see in this passage is men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, single and married. This is an incredibly diverse group, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. They were all a part of what God was doing in the church because they were dedicated to the same cause and the same Lord. I mean, as I looked across the the front here, the diverse group of people that were standing up here with their precious children, I look across this room and I see immense diversity. I mean, not just ethnic diversity, I mean just the men and women, the different occupations, the different gifts, I mean, the the different experiences and backgrounds and that way that God has, has taken us all and just kind of like slammed us together in the same family. 
And God has a unique purpose in doing that. And, and I love the diversity because it reminds us, listen, that heaven is going to be a diverse place. Isn't it true? Aren't we looking forward to the day where we will stand around the throne of God's grace and glory, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and we will all declare praises to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The church reflects that here and now. There are diverse people, but, but lastly, there are united people. There was great unity amidst their great diversity, and that's what Jesus does. He, he knits together a family of people who, who otherwise would probably have nothing to ever do with each other. And it doesn't matter what we don't have in common. What matters is the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved us all, the one that we worship, the one we adore, the one who is the cornerstone And I, I love the unity that's expressed. You know, throughout this letter, Paul has been very concerned that amidst the diversity, especially between the Jews and the Gentiles, that they be a people of unity, that they learn how to live with one another, even where they differ with one another. This is a, a healthy mark of unity where we can look at each other and say, hey, I don't always agree with you. I don't always like what you like or, or do what you do. I don't think the way you think on all things. But you know what? We both love Jesus. We're both serving Him. And so we fight for unity in the family of God. By the way, uh, the very last verse that we read there, the last one, I think that's what this really speaks to. Notice what he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Somebody once asked me if we were going to start taking that passage literally. I said, you're welcome to, but I'm not going to. I love this though. Do you notice the dominant, by the way, the dominant command in this passage 14 times is the word greet, 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 greet. Greet, greet, greet. And the picture that we have here at the very end is this idea of this warm affection that is supposed to be characteristic of the family of God. And while we don't, you know, it was an ancient, it was a more, uh, an ancient practice to greet one another with a holy kiss. In some places around the world, they still do that. But right now, we would, we would you know, hugs and handshakes, showing some kind of affection, a brotherly kind of affection and love. This is to be normal in the family of God. And what we see here is that these are a people who fostered true fellowship, united around Jesus Christ. And this actually helps us understand our own dedication to the church. We all need to learn to serve the Lord in whatever situation the Lord has placed us in. The diversity in this room is very clear. There are some of you who are single. There are some of you who are married. There are some of you who have young children, some of you who have grown children. There are some of you who are rich and some of you who are poor. But the idea that we see in this passage is that we cannot excuse ourselves from service in the church because of our situation. We can't make excuses and say, well, I, I, you know, I, I've just, I'm in this stage of life, therefore I can't serve the Lord, or, or I've got too much going on over here and I just can't serve the Lord. No, whatever God has placed you in, whatever situation He's given you in, He still calls you to serve. And while each situation has its own unique obstacles, they also present their own unique opportunities. I'm not suggesting that everybody has to serve the same way at all times. Yes, circumstances change the way we can serve, but the bottom line is if you're a part of the family of God, you must serve. You must be a person who's engaged in the life of the family. 
Through this ragtag group of ordinary, diverse, but unified people, the impact of the gospel was profound and great in the city of Rome. And you can read about it in church history. The church in Rome did incredible things, and they were recognized not just inside the church, but outside the church. I mean, pagan emperors started to despise the church because Christians were having such a massive impact on the gospel, and they were putting their pagan gods to shame. What might God do as we grow in our dedication to our Lord, to each other, as the family of God, to the church of Jesus Christ, to the mission that He has set us on? I wonder, I wonder if God is, is digging into your heart just a little bit this afternoon and wanting you to be more dedicated to what He loves, what He is building, what He is doing in this world, and what will ultimately last forever. Next, we see not just the people it takes, but the perspiration it takes. I think we, we learn that from this group of people. I mean, Paul commends them, and over and over again, we read the words, a work or workers, hard work. And we just see this emphasis on the people of God who are throwing themselves in to the work of the ministry. Now, when you think about work in the church, that can look all kinds of different ways. It can be a physical work. It can be mental work. It can be prayer or hospitality or visiting others. It can require counseling or discipling or teaching, organizing events, giving of resources. There are so many jobs in the church. Some are seen and some are unseen. Paul wants us to know that all of us are called to be workers in the church, and I just want to take a minute to acknowledge that as Paul commends workers in the church, we have so many people in the life of this church who are so faithful, who are serving regularly, consistently, pouring themselves into the life of the church, and I praise God for you. Um, and and so, so, many of the work, so much of the work that happens in this church happens behind the scenes. It's often unseen and, and, and doesn't come with a lot of applause or thank you, but I just want you to know, for those of you maybe who, who have been serving so faithfully, I want you to know that even if I don't see you and others don't see you and don't see what you're putting in, the Lord sees you. He sees, He knows, and He's, he's grateful for you, and I'm grateful for you. I'm so thankful for the way that God has pulled so many people into this church. I also know this, that there are some of you in here, listen, who are not working. You're not working, and so you're going to hear a list of names here again, and, and you're going to see people working, and what you need to be thinking about is this, is what am I doing right now? What, what am I doing with what God has given me? If God has saved you, if God has called you, listen, God has gifted you, and God expects to use you in the life of the church, and He wants you to be a part of what He's doing, and so I want you to hear this, and some of you want this to kind of prick your conscience a little bit, and I hope that it causes you, it spurs you on to say, what can I do for the Lord in this family that God has brought me into? But, but Paul commends some different aspects of their work. I just want to point them out really quickly. I want you to see first that Paul commends a humble work, humble work. All of these people are working tirelessly, but not one of them is working to promote self. We don't get any indication that any of these people are looking for praise. They're not looking to be on a list. And nobody's sitting in Rome waiting for the letter to show up and going, I hope, I hope you put my name on the list. I hope Paul really recognizes how hard I'm working, you know, for the, the sake of Jesus Christ. 
They don't care about the accolades. They don't care about the promotion. What they care about is the glory of their Savior, Jesus Christ. They are working unto the Lord. They don't care who sees. They don't care who knows. They just want to glorify God. All work that is commendable in the church must be humble work. And secondly, notice this, it must be shared work. Again, that language, you can't get away from it. It's used multiple times. Fellow workers, those who are serving alongside. They see the common cause, the common goal. And I love this because Paul is so willing to recognize that he is not a one-man band. That this all doesn't rise or fall on the Apostle Paul. Yes, God gave him a a unique ministry to the the Gentiles, and he had to be faithful to the calling that God placed on his life. But Paul recognizes that even his unique calling as an apostle would be impossible to accomplish without the faithful people of God sharing in the work of the ministry. This is always the way the gospel goes forth. It's always the way the church grows. When the people of God rise up together, each member doing its part, strengthening the whole, glorifying the head, Jesus Christ, the work of the ministry gets done. Tumble work, it's shared work, but oftentimes, next, it's risky work or costly work. We recognize that a couple people are pointed out as significant in terms of the cost that they were willing to make. Prisca and Aquila, verse 4, who risked their necks, they put their life on the line. There are fellow prisoners here mentioned. In other words, there are people who actually went to prison for the gospel, maybe with Paul or at least alongside Paul, and Paul recognizes that for, for many, this calling and this work was costly. How how can people be willing to risk like this? Well, they're willing to risk it all because of the value of the mission, because they, they know that the gospel is a cause worth dying for. Jesus, our Savior, died for us. Are we willing, here's the question, are we willing to die for Him if necessary? And you know the bottom line is when we talk like this, I know it's, it's, you know it's interesting to think in these kind of categories, well, what would happen if some, what would you do if somebody came and put a gun to your head and said, will you deny Jesus? It's, it's, you know, you can have those little hypothetical situations and all of us say, like, I'd stand for Jesus. I, I would sacrifice all for Jesus. And I'm happy to hear that, but here's my question. None of us have our lives on the line for the gospel right now. What are you sacrificing for Jesus now? What are you sacrificing for Jesus now when it's easy, right? And by the way, if you're not willing to sacrifice for Jesus when it's easy, what makes you think you're going to be willing to sacrifice for Jesus when it's hard? Well, we live, listen, in in very comfortable times, and I don't despise that in any way. But I'll tell you this, the mark of the the city of Babylon in the book of Revelation, one of the things that marks it off and its destruction and its collapse and its downfall, it's a city that's committed to luxurious living and sexual immorality. The love of comfort, the love of pleasure, and it's those things, listen, that woo us constantly away from a love of Christ and finding greater pleasure in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to call us all, myself included, 
to greater sacrifice for the Lord, a greater willingness to sacrifice our reputations when we share the gospel with our unbelieving friends, a greater willingness to share or to sacrifice jobs if necessary because we, we cannot commit to certain things that violate our religious convictions and our commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, a willingness to do whatever it takes to put Jesus on display and to make sure people know that He's the one worth dying for because He's the one who died for us. It can be a risky work, but, but commendable work is often patient work. And we saw that, again, with uh, that first convert in Asia. And I just, I can't help but think about, about what it must have been like for him as that first convert and how there would have had to be this kind of patient work. And I know in one sense, listen, the gospel will oftentimes explode in places and grow rapidly and spread quickly in places. But oftentimes what we find out, listen, is that the gospel work is a slow work. It's patient work. It just doesn't just kind of go boom, and all of a sudden you got hundreds of people who are, who are wanting to follow Jesus Christ. Yep, that can happen, and we ought to pray that that happens. But I, I want you to see, more often than not, the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel is a patient work. It's like a farmer who patiently labors now, not seeing the fruit of his labor till much later, but believing and trusting that the hard work he puts in now is going to bear the fruit of a harvest. As Christians, we need to learn that everything we do now is about building for our future. Everything we do now in the church, listen, everything we do now in our ministries, in our homes, I think about like you parents with, with kids, this is patient work. Can I get an amen? I mean, it is often frustratingly patient work. I just I think about you know, you know the, the time that it requires the consistent investment in the, the young lives, not neglecting the responsibilities, the hard conversations, the, the, the reps you got to put in in discipline and conversations. And why are we having this one over? Why did you do that? We just had this conversation, right? The patience that's required to help form those young lives. Those of you who serve in kids' ministry every week or in youth ministry, I, I know sometimes it feels like, what am I even doing? Is, is, is this having any impact at all? Like, the kids come in, they're hyperactive, they don't listen, and they leave hyperactive. And all the parents say thank you. But listen, you're sowing seeds of the gospel. You, you, you don't, you'll see it right away. And, and sometimes you don't see it. You'll never see it sometimes in this life. But you can be sure, listen, that some of those seeds are being planted in, in rich, soft soil. And at some point in time, God is going to allow the light to come on. The, the water is going to come flooding in. The light is going to come blazing down. And that little seed that was planted by you years and years ago is going to begin to sprout up and begin to bear fruit by faith and repentance and a life lived for Jesus. But it's patient work. It's patient work. I love our church. I love the story of our church. It started off nice and small, a small group of people meeting and praying in a, a basement. A small group of people who are dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to the church, dedicated to see God move, to see people saved, to see people discipled. 
And I can just tell you that we're, we're, we're coming up on 12 years, and I look around this room, and I, some of you were there. Some of you sat in that basement, and we prayed, and we cried, we, we worshiped, we rejoiced, and we prayed. Listen, and we prayed, we prayed that God would bring all the rest of you. And God has been so faithful, but I can tell you this, this takes time. And if we're going to look towards our future, church, we've got to see this. We've got to see that, that it's going to require patient work now so that we can continue to reap a harvest later. And we got, listen, patient work is trusting work, okay? Lock that away in your mind with your kids, with, with the people you're pouring into, small group leaders as you're discipling people, and you're like, is this ever going to take any, you know, get, gain traction in their life? It, it, patient work is trusting work, and here's why we know that. Listen, because some plant and some water, but God gives the growth. Amen? God gives the growth in His perfect timing. We just need to do what God is calling us to do and be patient, watching, waiting, and expecting the results. Lastly here, it's hard work. It is hard work, and you can't get away from the fact that that is pressed into us so many times in this passage. Verse 6, Mary. Verse 12, the three women. Did you notice in this passage, interestingly, that only the women are called hard workers? (laughs) Happy Father's Day. (laughs) I had some guy say to me, well, yeah, yeah, the women work harder, but the men work smarter. I'm like, yeah, really? I'm sure. But I, I love this, though. I love that Paul is commending these women, especially delicate and dainty. Those are my two favorite people in this passage. These two girls, they're probably twins. These, these, you know, they're, they're just delicate. They're, their parents give them these sweet names, never realizing these women would grow up to be some of the hardest workers that Paul would commend them for the work they do in the church for the advancement of the gospel. And I love that Paul points out these women because, listen, there are some people who look at the Bible and they think that this is some kind of a patriarchal, misogynistic, chauvinistic kind of religion. And you know what Paul says? Paul says, you don't have any clue what you're talking about. You don't understand how valuable women are to the Lord. You don't see how valuable they are to the work of the ministry. Paul is saying, I can't do what I do without the women that God has provided to make this happen. That ought to encourage at least all you women. But to be sure, there are plenty of men in this passage too. And Paul loves to point out the hardworking people. And he wants us to know that he sees, he values. I love that women are greatly praised in the Scriptures, their work and their devotion to Christ and His church. I know the, the women in this church who serve so faithfully and do so much, and I'm so thankful for them. Um, somebody once said that, that, that the women were last at the cross and first to the tomb. The prominent place, one author says, occupied by women in Paul's entourage shows that he was not at all the male chauvinist of popular fantasy. We should all be characterized by hard work for the cause of Christ. Listen, and the words that he uses there, uh, he uses two words. One just describes his work in general. The words he applies to delicate and dainty here, he, he says they work to the point of exhaustion. Blood, sweat, and tears. These, these were not passive spectators in the life of the church. They were active participants. They're like, put me in, coach. Get me off this bench. There's work to be done, and I want to do it. Man, God loves that heart. God blesses that. If we had an army of people in this church like that, man, what God would do for the cause of the gospel. All of us are called to serve together. 
Yes, it's going to look different for each of us, different situations that we're in, different resources that we have, different schedules, but God has given opportunities to us. There is this tendency, listen, to grow weary in doing good, but don't grow weary in doing good in the life of the church. Spurgeon, if you're looking for some ideas about how to serve maybe in the life of the church, some of you uh, need a little bit of spurring on, and Spurgeon's got a great way of doing that. So l- let me tell you, he, he, he says this. He's encouraging people to, to seek the lowest forms of servanthood so we can represent Jesus. I love that. Only Spurgeon, right? This little, you want to be like Jesus, seek out the lowest forms of service in the church and go and do that. And then he says it like this. He says, if there is a position in the church where the worker should have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. If you can perform a service with which few will ever seek to do themselves or appreciate it when performed by others, occupy it with holy delight. Covet humble work, and when you get it, be content to continue in it. There is no great rush after the lowest places, and you will rob no one by seeking them. That's great. Are you working? Are you working for the Lord? How are you working for the Lord? We need to work and we need to to work the right way, but we need to see this lastly. It's not just about the people it takes, the perspiration it takes. We must see the power it takes. You know, it's possible to work hard, but with the wrong power source. You could be attempting to put diesel fuel in your petrol car. (laughs) And what happens when you do that? Here's the question. What happens when you, when you work from the wrong power source? Here's what happens. It's not very long before you become bitter and you burn out. You become bitter and, bitter and you burn out if you're seeking to gain approval from others. That's a terrible power source. Those with a high need for approval have the highest potential for burnout. And if that's you, what you do is you, you, you take already hard work and you make it exponentially harder than it needs to be because you're constantly working for and from approval, affirmation, and rec- recognition from others, and that just can't fuel you. It's not designed to fuel you. It leaves you bitter and burnt out. But burnout, listen, is also a byproduct of working from guilt. Some of you work from guilt. You just, you just you can't say no. You, just, you feel guilty for saying no. You have to do everything. You say yes to everything. Then in the end, you're mad because you did everything. But you didn't have to. You can learn to say no. But burnout, this burnout and bitterness come from working out of guilt. They also come when we have a Messiah complex. When we, we're trying to be someone else's savior. And we can often do this in life, and this is disastrous. You know, we, we, just, we just think we're... We're God's greatest gift to the church, and we're like, oh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you can't. See, it's all about your power. But you cannot be powered by the approval of others. You must be powered by the approval from God. The approval He's already given you in Christ Jesus and the approval that you should want from Him. You should want to be pleasing to Him. You should want to honor Him. And you cannot be powered by guilt. You must be powered by grace. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ must fuel you, knowing that He has set you free from sin and death, and He's given to you the very power of His Holy Spirit. It is grace that must drive you on, and you can't save anyone. Only Jesus saves. 
And when we see His saving power, when we are fueled by His grace, when we're seeking only His approval to be pleasing to Him, we will have the power it takes to be the dedicated people, the dedicated church that God has called us to be, without bitterness and without burnout. But I want you to see this here. Our power comes from our union with Jesus Christ. And over and over again, uh, you can go through this passage. Here's what we read. Greet so-and-so in Christ, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in the Lord, over and over and over again. Paul, yes, he's wanting to remind them of what unifies them. He wants to remind them that they are a family, but he's reminding them, listen, of the source for their power to live the Christian life. It is their union with Christ. We are enabled to do all that God calls us to do in Christ, and that is it. We in Him and He in us. That's what the church is. The church are people who are rescued and redeemed and they're reconciled to God in Christ. That's it, in Christ. That's, that's our hope in life and death. That's our hope that we are found in Christ, that when we, listen, at the end of our life, that we will stand before God and God will not judge us for our sins because we repented of our sins and we look to Jesus Christ as the one who stood in our place, who died a death he didn't deserve, who rose victoriously in power and in strength from the grave. And because we are in him, he takes all of our sin and he gives us all of his righteousness. And to prove that we are saved and saved forever, he gives us the guarantee, the down payment, the deposit of the Spirit of God, God in us, because we are in Christ. We are those who know that our God, listen, listen, we know, if you're in Christ, we know that our God is dedicated to us, amen? He has done everything to prove it, even when we prove that we're not dedicated to Him. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that He foreknew us and predestined us to be conformed into the image of His Son. He called us and justified us and will one day glorify us. And in Romans chapter 8, just listen to this. Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And listen, listen, while, while, while your name and mine may not be on this list, can I tell you this? Listen, if you're in Christ, your name is on another list. Your name has been written on a list in a book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a book that God has with Him in heaven, and on that list is every person that He has chosen before the foundation of the world, that He by His blood has, 
has bought and paid for, has ransomed from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. If you're in Christ, your name is on that list. And because He didn't, listen, not just because he, he He risked His life, but because He gave His life for you. Yes, yes, a thousand times over, our God is dedicated to us. Jesus is dedicated to His church How can we, as His chosen, blood-bought church, not then be dedicated to Him and together give all of ourselves for Him and for His glory?